0: Turn.
1: Give me liberty,
0: or give me death! We will not falter. And that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And we will not fail.
1: Ask not what your country can do for you. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
0: Free man!
1: And now, Common Sense Makes a Comeback.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Peter Heck Radio Show. So I got a question as we start off uh, another week of broadcasting here on the Peter Hegg Radio Show. Going to be with you all week. Looking forward to it. Glad you're with us. I got a question to start off this week, and it may make some of you a little uncomfortable. Never avoided that in the past, and don't plan on starting right now. And specifically, the individuals it may make uncomfortable are the ministers. As I ask those of you in this listening audience to answer a question. You went to church on Sunday. How many of your ministers mentioned the fact to the congregation that the president of the United States of America last week, the sitting president of the United States of America, came out and called God a liar? Put his stamp of approval and said that the country, our civilization, should put its stamp of approval upon something, a behavior that God himself calls an abomination. How many of your ministers mentioned that this Sunday? Peter, it was Mother's Day. Look, I've got the list. I compiled a list of the various reasons why a minister might not have mentioned it. I've looked at this list, I've evaluated this list, and when you compare it to the moment that we now stand as a civilization, as a country, if it is the role of the church to be God's ambassador, speaking truth in a crooked and a depraved generation, none of these excuses come close to to, to even to making it, to giving a pass. It just, it doesn't. And I'm not trying to embarrass anybody, and I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, and I'm not trying to tell anybody how they should be shepherding their flock. I'm not trying to tell anybody how they should be running their church. But I am trying to impress upon you that you may be experiencing in your own church the very malady, the very illness, the very problem that has led us to where we now stand as a civilization. So many of us wring our hands and so many of us get upset and shake our head and point our fingers at all of the sin and the corruption in our culture, all of the divorce, all of the adultery, all of the the promiscuity and the fornication. We point to the greed and and the abuses of Wall Street and K Street and every street you could ever imagine. We get upset with all of this stuff that's going on in the country. And we shake our fists, we shake our heads, we shake our fingers. Shake anything that needs shaking. And yet we may be seeing in our own churches precisely how and why it's happened. I write in my book, 78, How Christians Can Save America that we can argue all we want about politics and cultural issues and social issues. And we can argue all we want uh, uh, about the about the politics and the way that government is run. But until the church is right, until the church accept accepts its responsibility to be the conscience of our culture, the conscience of America, having the courage to speak out on the issues that impact people, Shining the light of God's truth to the issues that we deal with in America today, in the world today. Of course, that includes poverty. Of course, that, that that includes a host of other things that our friends on the left called social justice issues, environment, whatever. God's truth is to be spoken to those things. But God's truth is still true when it comes to sexual morality. And if I might be so bold as to point back to God's judgment that he meted out on cultures and civilizations in biblical days. Few of those civilizations were destroyed for not taking care of the poor. doesn't mean God condones not taking care of the poor. It simply means that I struggle to find civilizations that God wiped off the face of the earth because they were not taking care of, of the destitute. Few of those civilizations do I find that God has wiped off the face of the earth because they weren't embracing an environmentalist mantra. But I can point to many that were into perversion and sexual immorality and embracing and calling something that God calls an abomination. They were calling it good. They were so caught up in it they couldn't even see straight anymore. I can point to many of those civilizations God's truth is applicable, and it's to be spoken to all of the issues that we face. Yet what's so amazing is that the very people that say things like, uh, well, you know, God doesn't just talk about abortion and homosexuality. There's other things the church should be talking about. You know what I find? I find those are the very same voices that don't want the church to speak to abortion and homosexuality. It's not that they want the church to speak to other issues as well. It's that they're saying that to shame the church into no longer speaking about those things. How many of your ministers brought up what was an earth-shattering event last week? Now listen, I understand. We kind of knew this is where Barack Obama was. We kind of knew that this is what he believed. But publicly, the president did not acknowledge that he was in favor of our society condoning and putting its stamp of approval on something that God explicitly forbid. Last week he did it. And on Sunday you had the gathering of thousands upon thousands of Christians in houses of worship around this country. How many ministers spoke out from the pulpit and said the leader of our country has shaken his fist at God. And is calling upon us as Americans to do the same. To say we are more moral than our Creator. That we know better, we are wiser, we are more compassionate, we are more loving than our Creator. We know better than God. That was the message of the President of the United States of America. And if anybody should have been shaking down the rafters, calling down the thunder, it should have been our ministers. How many of your ministers had the courage from the pulpit to speak the truth. And listen to me. You think very carefully about what that says about the direction that your minister is leading your congregation. Now, let me let me go through the list that I came up with, and maybe you can come up with some other things. I thought to myself, well, okay, first of all, I guess it's possible that they agree with President Obama, that that's the direction we need to go. and And there are some, sadly, some places that call themselves churches that, that are on that page, that have decided to abandon the Bible. They've, they know better than the Bible. Listen, if you're in a church like that, uh, you need to, to hit the road, Jack. Get out and get out fast. Find a place that actually holds to something, clings to something concrete and foundational, holds to the in, in, inerrant and infallible Word of God. It is the only anchor in this messed up world. So that's option number one. That's possibility number one, that they agree with Obama, that that's the direction we need to go. If that's the kind of church you're in, get out. Secondly, it's possible that your minister didn't mention it because he was in the midst of a series. You know, he's preaching on a number of stories. I will tell you, I'm not meaning to embarrass him. I, this isn't an embarrassment. I took the time. And I would encourage all of you to do this. If you go to a church and your minister had the courage to mention it, I do. I go to such a church. And my minister is in the middle of a very long series. It's like 30-some weeks. Some of your churches maybe are doing it too. It's called The Story. It's a fabulous look at how God's eternal quest to be with mankind goes throughout the ages. It is a fabulous experience that we are having as a church. It's a wonderful thing. But my minister said from the pulpit this Sunday, whether you are Republican or Democrat, whatever your political background, if you are a believer, you should have been incensed when the President of the United States suggested, not suggested, said that God was wrong and that he was right. Believers should be incensed. And if you're not, my fellow Christians, wake up! This isn't about Republican-Democrat. This doesn't have anything to do with Mitt Romney, Barack Obama. This has to do with the survival of this civilization. And if we are selecting and choosing leaders who willingly and openly shake their fist at God and call us to a direction as a society and a civilization that goes in the opposite direction of God's will and His moral law and His natural expectations, we are doomed. How a believer could ever support such a leader. The only possibility is that you have you have elevated things that are of lesser worldly importance above that which is of eternal importance. God help you if you're doing that. I'm not saying you have to vote for Mitt Romney. That's not what this is. I am saying Barack Obama has made it explicitly clear to you, Christians, he is leading this civilization in a direction that is opposite the will of God. You cannot accept that. And if you do, think of what that says about your submission to Christ. Ministers should have been carrying that message. I took the time to call my minister. It was Mother's Day. It was Sunday. I dropped Jenny off. She ran into Meyer. I had the two kids in the back of the van. I picked up the cell phone. I knew he was at lunch with, uh, with his family. So I knew I'd get his voicemail, but before I forgot, I wanted to do it. And I picked up the phone, I dialed it, and I left him a voicemail and just said, thank you for having the courage to speak truth in the midst of a crooked and a depraved generation, in the midst of this darkness, having the courage to stand on truth. I always knew that he was such a man, but he demonstrated it. And if you have a minister who did that, Listen, I, I guess I come from the school. I was, I was introduced, I was speaking at a church, and it was the best introduction I think I've ever gotten. The minister called me a radical revolutionary for Jesus. I have never been so honored in my entire life. And maybe you're like me, and, and, and that type of thing is just, is just bred in you and born in you, and that's just the way that you are. You've got that rebellious spirit, and when it's channeled in the right direction to rebel against the world, uh, rebel towards godliness, that maybe you sit there and say, I don't understand why a minister wouldn't take this opportunity to do this. This is what we're called to do. This is what we're supposed to be. I want to stress to you that not everybody is wired that way. Not everybody has that same kind of personality. And for some ministers, they really, really, really have hesitations and reservations about trudging into controversial territory. If you have a minister who is like that but overcame that trepidation because he knew the importance of standing on truth and speaking truth, make sure you say thank you. You are blessed. Some ministers may have been in the middle of a series, and for that reason they didn't get around to addressing it because they didn't want to interrupt the flow. Uh, Some of them didn't because it was Mother's Day. The whole point of Mother's Day goes back to the core concept of family, and that's what's at stake here. I'm looking at this story uh, from the Washington Times. Jeffrey Kuhner wrote it, basically saying um, we're at a crossroads. We're at a crossroads. The very thing I'm saying to you, Barack Obama is telling us to go in one direction. God has called us to go in another. We are at a crossroads. Which way will we choose? This is about the survival of our civilization and the backbone of that civilization, which is family. That is what is being sought. And just make no mistake about this. Once the family is destroyed and broken down, the only last obstacle that is standing in the way of the secular progressive revolutionaries that are leading what, what now is you know it's, it's manifesting in the form of this homosexual movement, but it's a larger movement, what they are ultimately after is the demise of Western Christendom. And they are coming after you next, Christians. I mean, they already are. That's what this is. This isn't Christians being aggressors in our culture the way that it's portrayed. That's the way the media plays this. That you got a bunch of Christian bigots who are trying to deprive other people of rights. No, this is about a group of radical sexual revolutionaries that have been in existence since the 50s and Alfred Kinsey through the 60s in the free love movement. And step by step, they've been dialectically making progress. And now... And now they're pushing hard. They have the wind at their back. They have the media on their side. And what they are doing is not seeking tolerance. They are seeking state approval and compulsion. They want the state to force you to accept and affirm and condone all forms of sexual depravity. Those things that God calls an abomination. This is about defending our way of life. It's not about assailing and assaulting another person's way of living. The media doesn't portray it properly. That's why the minister's voices are so needed. And that's why on a day like Mother's Day, it would be totally appropriate. I can't make sense of why this wouldn't be brought up. We honor and we recognize the significant role that a mother plays. That is an obvious acknowledgement that there is something that a mom does in the life of a child... And in raising children to be responsible citizens, therefore bringing about a productive society, there is a role that mom plays that dad doesn't play. God has gifted men and women differently. That recognition alone makes it so appropriate to draw in the fact that we have a president who is saying, in essence, men and women are interchangeable. You can have two men, or you can have two women, or you can have a man and a woman. It doesn't matter. As long as they are loving, that's all that counts. Another way of saying that is, we've outsmarted God. God thought we needed a man and a woman in that scenario to make the most productive family possible. But no, no, no. He had it wrong. We've got it right. Mother's Day would have been a perfect day. A most appropriate day to bring this up. That excuse is wanting. As far as being in the middle of a series, this is what I struggle with with so many churches. I have no problem with the sermon series. I I, I, think, that, I think that they're wonderful for organization and, the, and presentation. I think that they're great. But churches, too many, are fleeing from speaking to issues that are actually affecting their congregations. They're saying, we're going to talk about what happened in Old Testament days, but make no application. Or we're going to talk about what you know Jesus' parables were, but make no application to the way that they apply to our lives today. It's what, it's what kids get frustrated with in U.S. history class. Why do I need to learn about this? And it's the job of history teachers to make kids understand how what happened then affects what's going on today, and in the same way, we can't repeat what we did then if we want to get a different conclusion. You must make things applicable to those that are under your tutelage, your guidance, your leadership. And when ministers stray from speaking to the issues that affect us today more than any other, They're simply allowing the world to answer those questions that their own congregants have. God help us if that's the direction churches are going. Some ministers might have been unaware that President Obama did this. I look back to the Old Testament and I read God calling us to be sons of Issachar, those who understand the times and know what our culture must do. Understanding the times. Ministers, if the church is to be the light in our culture... If the church is to be the conscience of our people, you of all must be aware of what is the threat to the church. You must be aware of the threats to Christendom. You must be aware of the threats that your sheep face on a daily basis. I don't mean threats as an outside uh, um, physical pressure, although that may be coming. That form of persecution, I believe, is coming. But what threatens their mind, those false ideas and preconceived notions that are preached at them that Paul warned us about, those fine-sounding arguments that are leveled at them every day on television, every day in the magazines, every day on the news, every day in the newspaper articles, are you protecting the minds of your congregation? Are you training them in the way that they should go? Are you making disciples to be able to look at things through a biblical Christian lens instead of the lens of the world? If you are unaware of the issues that they are facing, then you simply can't be doing that. Still, other ministers might be worried about controversy because offended people won't contribute to your offering plates. If you are in such a church, that that is the top concern. Flee for the hills. Ask yourself the question, and if you cannot answer it in a way that makes you content, then ask your minister, why did you not mention this? Why did our congregation not be told? Why why were we not told about this? Why did we find no guidance and no leadership from the pulpit on this most significant moment? in the life of our country. You look back through American history at some of the most pivotal and critical moments, and it was the ministers, their pulpits of fire with the truth of God's Word, that were guiding and directing the people in the way that they should go. Maybe the reason that we're seeing such a mass exodus from the church today is because our churches have turned nothing uh, into nothing more than simple conventions, simple clubs, And people can find camaraderie and those types of things. Oh, we've got coffee on Sunday mornings. Well, they can find coffee at Starbucks. They get concerts every Sunday morning with the worship band. They can get a concert at Verizon Wireless. Maybe because our churches are not distinguishing themselves by the truth that they speak and their willingness to stand up against depravity and corruption and ungodliness. Maybe that's why people are fleeing, because they don't see anything different about the church than what they get from the world. And if the church is trying to live like the world to attract the world, I'm pretty sure people are going to choose the real thing. They'll take the world over pretend world any day. Why didn't your minister mention this? One of the most critical moments in American history the first opportunity your minister had to speak to it, why did he not? And on the flip side, of course, if your minister did, did you thank him? Did you support him? Did you send him an email of of appreciation and gratitude? I hope you did. Because the persecution is coming, and ministers are going to have to choose. And if you don't believe me that persecution is coming, I simply ask you to look at what is the parallel that the homosexual lobby has been moving in all of this, uh, using in all of this. They've been using the parallel of the civil rights movement. In fact, some have called Mr. Obama already, a modern day Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I would say to you, there are so many differences between uh, black civil rights and the LGBT agenda. It is difficult to even figure out a way to draw a comparison. Whereas race is inborn, it's involuntary, it's Im- immutable, it can't be changed, it's, it's innocuous, it doesn't hurt anybody. Those four eyes do not apply to homosexuality. It is not inborn. It is not involuntary. Homosexual behavior is always voluntary, whether lusts and urges are or not. The behavior always is. It is not immutable. It can be changed. Thousands upon thousands of ex gays testify to that. It is not innocuous. It does hurt people. Sexual depravity does hurt people. The parallels are totally false. I would also say that when we move in the direction of racial equality, we're moving in the direction of godly morality. After all, speaking biblically, there is but one race, Adam's race. So distinguishing between the races is really stupid, and it's unbiblical. When we move towards the vision of Dr. King, we're moving towards biblical morality. In fact, that's what King relied on to make his claims, to make his case. Contrast that with Mr. Obama. His is the exact polar opposite. He is calling us to live in rebellion to God's Word, not to live in concert with it. He's calling us to move in a direction opposite of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. He's no Dr. King. Not anywhere close. But draw that parallel out, and you can draw the conclusion of what's happening if that is the parallel that is being preached and is being accepted by the culture, then you tell me, what would happen if a church decided today that they were not going to participate in the marriage of a white and a black person or an Hispanic and a black person? That the church believed in separating the races from one another and not mixing them together? How would our culture respond to that? How would the state respond to that? How would the government respond to it? Not politely, to say the least. My friends, the same thing is coming for churches soon that will not agree to wed homosexuals. Where will your minister stand when that day comes? Where will your church stand when that day comes? Will they honor God or will they please men? I think you got a pretty good indication of the path that your church is on. Gauging by what happened or did not happen in your service this last Sunday. I mean, no shame on anybody. And perhaps there's another reason. Maybe it just slipped their mind. Again, something this critical, it's difficult to understand how it could have. But maybe it just slipped their mind. Maybe they're preparing a larger sermon. There are other reasons but i think you owe it to yourself you owe it to your fellow congregants you owe it to your family you owe it to the country to figure out just why it wasn't mentioned if it wasn't people say well i'm I, i'm uncomfortable with that i don't want to i don't want to rock the boat you're doing no one a favor by taking a pass on this if your minister is not willing to speak truth then you need to figure that out as soon as possible. I've made this analogy before. If your doctor, if you had a question about the way your doctor was treating you, would you not ask him? Of course you would. If your financial planner, you thought his practices were a little shady, you weren't sure what he was doing, would you not ask him and call him on it? Of course you would. But your minister, for some reason, is not speaking truth on the issues that are affecting us most right now. You're going to give him a pass and not rock the boat? That says to me that you are more worried about your physical health and your financial health than you are your spiritual health. That isn't wise. That isn't good. That isn't smart. Did your minister mention Barack Obama's call to rebel against God? If not, why? Why? That's the question you need to answer or find an answer to. I mean, it's bizarre even for Joe Biden standards. We're going to get to this piece of audio from the vice president of the United States here in just one second. And you don't want to miss it. This is just, it's fabulous. Let me thank our friends over at Gordo's Taco Shop first. You'll find them at 3015 South LaFountain Street, right next to the Pizza King, across from Star Financial Bank, across from Coffee Junkies there, uh, LaFountain Street, 3015 South LaFountain. In Kokomo, Indiana, most authentic Mexican cooking you're going to find anywhere. Try anything with the refried beans. I love the bean burrito. You know, I talk up the, you know, the, uh, the homemade taco shells and the, Incredible shredded beef that they've got. I talk up the carne asada. I talk up the botanas and all of this stuff because I've never had anything bad there. But really, if you're a fan of the refried beans, there's no better beans anywhere. I remember the first time I went and they put that on the nachos, just the regular nachos. I, I thought it was incredible. It was just there to the side. You could dip the chip in it if you wanted to. I the cheese melted over the top of it. It's just it's making me hungry even talking about it. Check them out again. Thirty fifteen South La Fountain Street. Thank them. For being good friends of Attaboy. I truly think uh, that the biggest challenge facing the Obama administration, uh, the re-election campaign anyway, and we're talking about uh, how things are not looking great for them right now. But I think that the biggest challenge they may face over the next few months, it may not be what everybody thinks it's going to be, which is finding a way to distract the electorate from the sorry state uh, of the economy under Obama. I think it may actually be finding a way to keep Vice President Joe Biden away from a microphone. And I think that they may have actually made that attempt. I mean, look, we all understand the, the list of gaffes of this guy, uh, Joe Biden. It makes Dan Quayle look like a Rhodes Scholar. It makes, it makes Sarah Palin look like uh, the, uh, the most brilliant person you would ever find. All of this talk on the left about the idiots on the right, like George W. Bush and Dan Quayle and Sarah Palin, you're, you you got Joe Biden, you got Nancy Pelosi on your side. You need not be talking. And especially right now, Joe Biden, I, the, the the gaffes, you can't even keep track of them anymore. I will tell you that Jonah Goldberg, there was a piece over at um, at National Review, it was like a, a, a snapshot of his book on liberal cliches, Goldberg absolutely annihilated Biden's so-called intellect and his so-called gravitas. He has no gravitas. And I'm not convinced he has much of an intellect at all. And and you ought to to see that. You can Google it. You can check out National Review. You'll find it. Um, But that is as good and hilarious an attempt as I've seen of anybody you know, to kind of encapsulate all of the Biden gaffes. It's just it's ridiculous that anyone on the left would ever, ever. Have piped up about, you know, Sarah Palin's lack of intellect in order to take over the presidency if she needed to. Oh, give me a break. Um, But this guy, uh, Joe Biden, is causing the administration bigger and bigger headaches, even on policy matters now. If you haven't heard the latest, if you haven't heard this piece of audio, please understand that you really owe it to yourself to watch the video because when you compile the audio and the video, you come to the same conclusion. Uh, I mean, Glenn Beck's um, radio crew that he's got apparently is touting the theory that Biden was heavily medicated when he gave this speech. Now, at first, I only heard it. And I thought, yeah, he does sound like he's it's uncharacteristically serious of Joe Biden. It's like he, this is where he's trying to you know, really draw them in. Instead, it's just freaking weird. Um, but then when you watch it with the video, which I did later, I totally get why Beck and, and Stu and Pat and whoever else he's got there with him. I totally get why they think that he's medicated, because just the way that his mouth looks and the way he kind of hunches forward. So I'm I'm going to say, since I believe that the biggest threat to the Obama re-election campaign is Joe Biden and a microphone, I think that maybe they slipped him something, you know, to try to uh, you know, try to prevent this, put him to put him to sleep for a while. Okay, here it is. Uh, this is the latest. Biden is, is, well, weaving together a speech to college kids that manages to insult uh, previous generations of Americans while unnecessarily declaring the greatness uh, of an unproven generation of Americans. He fails grammatically a couple times and, and slips on what I think is a fairly touchy policy subject, all in one short snippet of a speech. If you haven't heard, take a listen to Joe Biden speaking to these uh, to these college kids. Roll the roll the clip.
1: You're an incredible generation. That's not hyperbole either. Your generation and the 9/11 generation before you are the most incredible group of Americans we have ever, ever, ever produced.
0: Stop the tape. Stop. Stop. Really? I mean, listen, I I teach young people. I teach this generation, this young generation of Americans. I'm really impressed with a lot of them. But do we really know that they're the most incredible generation? Think about what that statement is saying. And he's stressing this is not hyperbole, which, by the way, Goldberg does a great job of ripping Biden whenever he says his not not figuratively, literally. That's one of his most favorite cliches, the tired ones that he uses. But it's never literal. What he's saying could never be literally taken. He just doesn't know how to use it. That's the great intellect of Joe Biden. But nonetheless, here he is. This isn't hyperbole. You are the most incredible group of Americans we have ever, ever, ever produced. Again, like, you see what I mean? It's kind of weird. It's kind of creepy. He's like trying to draw people in. I. But think of the presumptuous nature of ripping away the title of our greatest generation from so many previous generations the founding revolutionaries Oh, no nothing compared to this generation really we I mean, don't they have to prove that the the undaunted pioneers who faced incredible hardship to move westward nope nothing compared to this generation why These kids have to get out their electronic devices every morning and send messages to each other. It's nothing. The pioneers did nothing like that. You see what I mean? Maybe in the end this generation, young generation of Americans will prove themselves, however, for whatever reason, to be the greatest American generation. But to say that they already are? Stupid. I mean, we can call it anything else you want to call it that's nicer, but it's just dumb. The courageous Civil War era Americans that kept the union together. The industrial, the the inventing giants of our past that transformed the United States into a superpower, the world war generations. You just rip it away from them. And you hand the title to a group of kids who have yet to prove whether they will, uh, like their parents, simply rest on the blessings of liberty that others have given to them rather than demonstrate the resolve to preserve even greater blessings of the generation that's going to follow. To me, that was the worst part of the speech. But Biden wasn't done. Let's go ahead and roll this, uh, roll this forward.
1: You volunteer more than my vaulted generation of the 60s?
0: You're, you're what? I mean, maybe, I, look, maybe I'm wrong on this. I think the word he's looking for is vaunted. Isn't the vault what you do in Olympic games? I know we got the Summer Olympics coming up. Maybe that's where Biden is in his mind, in his heavily medicated state. The, the vault, isn't that what you run down the little runway there and you pounce off of and flip through the air? His vaulted generation of the 60s? And again, maybe that's a, an okay use of the term. I don't think it's common. I think vaulted is the word that he wanted. But his vaulted generation of the 60s, yes.
1: 2.8 million of you, since 9/11, have volunteered to serve in the United States military. 2.2 million of strapped-on boots that have taken them across the scorching sands of Iraq or the God-forbidden landscape of Afghanistan. Stop. I think it's God-forsaken landscape. If it was
0: God-forbidden. Then I don't think they'd be there. It's God-forsaken. That landscape, I suppose it doesn't matter. This is a Joe Biden speech. What did we expect? I'll tell you what we expected. We expected him to find somebody in a wheelchair in the crowd and say, Hey, stand up, let him see you. Or refer to Mitt Romney as President Romney.
1: (laughs) All right, sorry, let's go ahead and finish this. Thousands of fallen angels... And you hear me them tell me, and I read that your generation is not ready to take on responsibility. God, what is wrong with this
0: guy? <laughs> I'm sorry. What, is this a graduation speech? Is, I mean, tell me, is this a commencement address? Because if so, what? What is this? This is why Beck and his crew are saying he's medicated. There's something wrong with this guy. Don't you love all of the liberals out there? Well, wow, Sarah Palin just wasn't ready to be president. If if she would have needed to have been, she wasn't ready to become a president. So I'm I'm going to vote for, for a guy less qualified to be the actual president, and then this guy to be the to be the VP. They tell me that this generation isn't ready to lead. I just have one question. What are you wearing? (laughs) It's just, uh, yeah, I thought he was going to do the dirty Harry. You feel lucky, do you?
1: Punk. Roll Biden some more. Folks, you're also... Your generation is in the cusp of the most incredible change in world history. Oh,
0: yes. Uh, of course not
1: so. because of Barack Obama and Joe Biden. Yeah. Well, not because, because of the time in which you live. Mm. Mm, mm. Your generation is going to live through us being able to make solar energy as cheap as gas, or coal, excuse me, as, as coal, Stop, stop for a second.
0: Okay, a couple things to say about this. First of all, the old Freudian slip right there. Okay, Um, referencing solar energy, it'll be soon as cheap as gas or coal, excuse me, coal. First of all, of course it's going to be, Mr. Veep. And not because of the innovation of this youngest generation, but because of the foolishness of you and Barack America. By the way, Barack America is the famous gaff name, that Biden slapped on Obama the very first time he took the stage to introduce him as his running mate. Help me welcome Barack America. <laughs> but seriously, that, that's why we're going to have solar energy as cheap as gas, not because it's been innovated and it's become less expensive, but your guys' policies are jacking up gas prices through the roof, and you got a president who promised to bankrupt the coal industry because of how expensive it would be to produce under his cap-and-trade scheme. So of course, solar energy, no matter how many times government subsidies fail and it it goes belly up, eventually it'll be as cheap because you're driving everything else up through the roof. But can we go back? Joe Biden said in all seriousness, your generation is on the cusp of the most incredible change in world history, not because of me, but because of the time in which you live. Okay, so what is the most incredible change in world history? What is it? Making solar energy as cheap as coal? Really? That is the most incredible change in world history? Really? I mean, this is, what an embarrassment this guy is. Not just to this administration, but to the country. I, I just, I will not suffer The foolishness of those on the left that ever want to tell me about how uh, Sarah Palin was unprepared to become president. Give me a break. Listen to this clown. I say that with all due respect. Listen to this guy with his clownish stuff that he's throwing out there. Uh, I'm just I'm floored by this. And of course, what an embarrassment to bring this up in front of an informed audience. And I don't know whether this crowd was or not, but that's who Joe Biden is. He's an embarrassment to his office and continues to prove that in remarkable ways. thought you'd enjoy the audio because you are the the most incredible radio audience that has ever, ever ever existed. Thanks to our friends of Adboy Productions Incorporated, like those at Terrell's Auto Service. Check them out, six thirteen East Payton Street. You got problems with your vehicle? Whether it's major auto repair that you think you're going to need, or minor auto repair, you want to take it to the experts so they can diagnose it. All of their mechanics there are ASC certified. They've worked at the big dealerships. Now they're doing it the right way, and they're saving you money. Whether it's an oil change, like I said, major auto repair, minor auto repair, they work on uh, on uh, the the old cars. What do they call the classics? Ew. Antiques, that's the one I was looking for. They work on the antique cars. They also, obviously, work on diesel engines, regular engines, all of that. They're experts. Terrell's Auto Service, 613 East Payton Street in Greentown. Thank you for being good friends of Attaboy, as are the folks at Norris Insurance. You got a vehicle on the road because Terrell's is keeping it there. You need to have it insured. Why don't you think about Norris Insurance branches all over central Indiana? They will come running. So we'll be back for more of the Peter Egg Radio Show right after this. Peter Heck Radio Show, or smart Motor, green Greentown inbox, Peter at PeterHeck.com. Peter at PeterHeck.com. Would love to hear from you. You want to give us a shout, 455-1333. Chris will do his best to get that answered. If you want, if you want to talk to us, that's the way to do it. 455-1333, the number, smart Motor, green Greentown inbox, Peter at PeterHeck.com. Got it? Good. Big hour, too. A lot of things going on, a lot of things percolating. But I have to start off with, with this, this whole thing. Homage to the moderates. Do you ever notice... Do you ever... Surely you do. Surely this is not lost on you. That the only time anybody ever laments the loss of moderates... It's when it's a... um, It's when Republicans, conservatives are doing well. When it's a big win for the Democrats, like in 2008... You know, a big a big landslide year for the Democrats. You don't hear anybody complaining and, and moaning and whining in the media about, oh, where have all the moderates gone? Where are all the moderates? Now, part of that is because they view every liberal as a quote-unquote moderate. They've redefined what moderate means. Remember um, uh, uh, um, Professor Weissong at Indiana University Kokomo. The old big stink that we had about that. Where he marked on the student's paper that Nancy Pelosi is a middle-of-the-road politician. That's what I mean. Nobody complains about the loss of moderates on the left just because they've redefined the whole political system, whole political spectrum, I should say. So people like Pelosi are about as far left as you could ever imagine. Oh, those are moderates. Well, I mean, what do you have to what do you have to be freaking Karl Marx before anybody starts saying, well, he's not moderate. He's a little bit to the left there. Well, oh, you think? Anyway, so this is, but nobody ever whines or complains about the loss of moderates on the left. It's only when conservatives start winning that everybody starts wringing their hands and, oh, goodness. Have we lost have we lost the moderation in our deliberative bodies? What's going to happen? We get, we get conservatives in there, well, there's no moderates left to, to reach across the aisle. Nobody gives a flip about reaching across the aisle when Democrats win big. Nobody worries about it. Nobody whines about it. Nobody's concerned and doing all of these interviews and talking to all these people. Nobody's getting intestinal discomfort when Democrats win big because, oh, we've lost the people who will reach across the aisle. Because they don't want to reach across the aisle to Republicans. It's only when Republicans start electing guys who say, you know what, we're going to stick to our principles are going to we're not going to reach across and, and go along with and compromise with socialists on the left only then only then do they complain about it. when they elect somebody like Barack Obama who says yeah republicans can come along but they got to get in the back of the bus you know they're not going to get to say a whole heck of a lot what was that quote that he had about not saying a whole lot republicans aren't allowed to elections have consequences i won Nobody was worried about the loss of moderation, the polarizing of our politics. Nobody was talking about that. But Richard Murdoch beats Dick Lugar in an election. Did you see what he said? It's like bipartisanship has become a bad word. Everybody's just going to be so polarized. Because Richard Murdoch's going to go there. He says he's going to stick to his principles. He's not going to compromise on his principles. Well, neither did Barack Obama, but I didn't see you whining about that. It's just so obvious. It's just so patently obvious and transparent. I really hope you all don't fall for it. I really hope you don't, you don't give in in these kind of conversations when people say this. Well, you have to be worried a little bit about the polarization of our politics, right? I hope you say, I'm not any more worried about it now than I was when the most polarizing president of all time was elected. I'm a little curious as to why you're concerned about it more now than you were then. But ever since Dick Lugar bit the proverbial dust here in the state of Indiana, in the Indiana primary, you have liberals in both the Republican Party, liberal Republicans, and liberal Democrats who have been having a field day, and they've been using the defeat of Dick Lugar as justification, as as evidence for their tired claim that Republicans have moved so far to the right they can't even identify the middle anymore. To them, it's just unconscionable. They cannot fathom how a political party would choose to embrace such a radical ideology so far from the mainstream. Look, I don't want to burst anybody's bubble because I know how proud these folks are of themselves that say this nonsense. Actually, what am I talking about? Of course I want to burst your bubble because it's a stupid bubble. It's a really annoying bubble. It's a bubble that needs to be burst. It's a childish bubble. These folks, these liberals, think they've got a winning campaign slogan, and so they're loading their rhetorical bombs as fast as they can drop them out there in the media and in the press. But I want you to stop and think about it. Think about what they're saying, this dangerous rightward shift of the Republican Party so far out of the mainstream. Stop and think about this. When did that dangerous rightward shift start taking place? When did it start taking place? In our modern era, it started taking place in the lead-up of the 2010 elections, didn't it? That's when the Tea Party was born. That dastardly group of ne'er-do-wells, the Tea Partiers, that's when they tell us that this, this rightward shift began to take place. That's when the Republican Party moves so dangerously away from the American mainstream, it's imperiling the country. Oh, we are so worried. Just look at Diane Sawyer's constipated face. So worried. Now, could somebody refresh my memory? How did mainstream America react to that outrage of all of those conservative Tea Party Republicans? Somebody remind me, I. oh yeah, they elected those individuals in historic, unprecedented numbers. So the dangerous rightward shift that is embodied by the Tea Party, that was so out of touch with the American mainstream, it was so out of touch with the American mainstream, that the American mainstream elected them in historic numbers. Uh, some's not quite adding up right there, Ace. What's, what's going on, Slick? We're not quite getting it. I'll tell you, either the American people are too dumb to know that these radicals don't think like them, or the liberals who are making up this line don't really have a clue what mainstream America is. I'm going to bet on the latter. I'm going to say this isn't about mainstream Americans not realizing what the tea Party uh, these Tea Party candidates stood for or stand for. I don't think it's an issue where uh, voters were just too dumb and they got, they, they got snowed under. Because these Tea Party types, unlike other politicians, were about as clear as they could possibly be about what they believed. And what their principles are. I don't think mainstream America was hoodwinked. I think they knew exactly what they were voting for. And since they voted for these individuals to argue that these individuals are out of the American mainstream, when the American mainstream elected them in huge numbers doesn't make any sense. What it should indicate to you is... That these geniuses that think that Nancy Pelosi is mainstream America, they don't have a stinking clue what mainstream America is. I've said for a long time, I've said for a long time and I stand by it, that there are a lot of people on the left. um, There are a lot of people on the left that would literally be shocked if they knew... What, what, what a majority of Americans, even that call themselves Democrats, really think about issues. Whether or not it translates into votes. I think that there's even a large number of Democrats, people that go in and vote for Democrats, who if you really ask them, and they had the, and the, they had the promise of anonymity, and they could just be honest and straightforward with you, I bet a lot more of them have conservative tendencies than would ever admit it. And if there is anything that has proven itself historically to be out of the American mainstream, it's not conservatism. It's this unfettered modern liberalism. Over and over and over again, it's been proven to be out of the mainstream. Why do you think liberals run away from the label liberal? Conservatives don't do that. You don't see conservatives trying to hide from what their label is. In fact, what you actually see is a lot of liberals that want to convince everybody that they're conservative. Um uh, historically, if there's anything out of the mainstream, <laughs> it's liberalism. It, uh, what, that's exactly why Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama's fundamental misreading of the 2008 election results. They believed that this was, uh, th- this was the result of America putting its stamp of approval on liberalism. And so they went hog wild. And what happened? Turned into an epic nightmare for them just two years later. But it's not going to stop them. These liberals are going to keep going with this. They're going to keep running with their rhetoric. They're going to keep making fools of themselves as they do. And it's our responsibility to point out how foolish it is, which is my whole point in all of this. You cannot complain about the loss of moderates when you only consider conservatives to be fringe, to be radical. It doesn't make any... Let me give you an example. Paul Begala. Used to work in the Clinton White House, now a CNN guy. Here's Paul Begala on the uh, writing about the loss of Dick Lugar, Republican moderate. Let's be honest, he was he, he was a liberal, moving left on a number of issues, on on some issues still conservative, but the loss of the great moderate Dick Lugar. Here's what he wrote, Paul Begala. The longest-serving Republican in the Senate was unceremoniously dumped last week by the Tea Party fringe. He was just too doggone moderate, too ready to compromise with the Democrats. Thanks for that, Senator Luger. Oh, and you're fired. Today's Republicans are different. They truly have put partisanship ahead of patriotism. I mean, is this kind of jingoism? Is this kind of uh, rhetorical fluff? What... I mean, yes, it is what they go for over at CNN. This is what counts for serious analysis over at CNN. Um, but in other words, you're moderate when you're a Republican who compromises your conservative values with liberal Democrats. That's what makes you a moderate. I wonder if Bagala would use the same descriptors for Democrats who sometimes side with conservatives being dumped by their party. Do you suppose that would be the case? Well, fascinatingly enough, James Taranto over at the Wall Street Journal was able to uncover one such perfect example. You remember a guy named Joe Lieberman? Good old Joe Lieberman was dumped by his party. Ran as an independent because he was dumped by his party in the primary. Why did the Democrats dump him in Connecticut and go with the fringe left-winger Why'd they dump him? Because too often he was compromising with conservatives. So, if this uh, Paul Begala fella is consistent, and he's truly lamenting the loss of moderates, people who would reach across the aisle, we would surely find him writing something about how um, Joe Lieberman long-serving Democrat in the Senate, was unceremoniously dumped last week by the far-left fringe. He was just too doggone moderate, too ready to compromise with the Republicans. Thanks for that, Senator Lieberman. Oh, and you're fired. Today's Democrats are different. They have truly put partisanship ahead of patriotism. I'm sure we'll see that from Paul Begala, right? No. Turns out that's not how Paul Begala responded. In 2009, you know what Paul Begala called Senator Joe Lieberman? He called him, quote, Traitor Joe. Hmm. Now, how does that work? How is it that when you are a Republican who compromises with Democrats, like Dick Lugar, uh, you're you're a statesman, you're a moderate. But when you're a Democrat, like Lieberman, who compromises with conservatives, you're a traitor. How does that work, Mr. Begala? What's going on here? This is why I let off the the hour. That's why I let off this segment by simply saying, let's just drop all of this trash about the loss of moderates on the Republican side. Let it go in one ear and out the other. It's stupid. The reason Democrats are doing this is because they're desperate. They they don't want to lose to conservatives. And so they've got to try to use whatever rhetorical bomb they can to tarnish the Republicans they're running against. And one of the major methods of doing that is to portray them as fringe individuals. Democrats know that as long as more conservatives are elected, the less chance they have of getting their way, getting their agenda uh, passed. Which, by the way, their agenda is what truly defines being out of touch, out of the mainstream. And they know as long as conservatives like Richard Murdoch are elected, they're not going to be able to push that agenda through. That's why they're reacting this way. Not because they're really concerned about the loss of moderates. You see the way they feel about the loss of moderates when it's a moderate Democrat. They call him a traitor. What they're worried about is advancing their agenda. And they know conservatives are going to thwart that agenda. Had there been more conservatives in Congress, Obamacare would have never been enacted. That's what they're worried about. Just remember that. And it's not just Bagala When Joe Donnelly starts running around talking about how Richard Murdoch, he, he, he thinks partisan, bipartisan is a bad word, is a dirty word. You have to be able to reach across the aisle and work together. Keep in mind, this is the same guy that joined in a unanimous vote to take over one-sixth of, uh, of the American economy. A unanimous vote amongst Democrats that didn't get a single Republican vote. You want to know how concerned Joe Donnelly was on a critical piece of legislation about working across the aisle? He voted in lockstep with his party on one of the most important and significant and huge fundamental shifts in American governing philosophy in American history. Joe Donnelly was as big of a party boy as you could possibly be. Screw bipartisanship. I know that not a single Republican, even those moderate Republicans, are going to vote for this. But I'm marching on with my party. That's how concerned Joe Donnelly is about reaching across the aisle on big stuff. Now again, if those are Joe Donnelly's principles, fine. But don't come in and talk about how you're Mr. Moderate and are going to reach across the aisle when on the issues that matter most, you don't want anything to do with it. All I'm saying to you is, Democrats are Democrats, Republicans are Republicans, conservative uh, conservatives are going to be conservative and liberals are going to be liberal And that's the way that it is. You got people of differing philosophies and they state their case to the American people and the American people embrace it. Who you should be leery of are those that want to run from what their ideology is and pretend it's not. And in order to get elected, simply try to paint the other side as fringe kooks when they're just as fringy on their side as the people they accuse uh, are on their side. Pay attention to the fact that you only hear the the lamentations about the loss of moderates when conservatives are winning. When liberals are winning, nobody's too worried about it. That should speak volumes to you. These people are frauds. Just understand it, see through it, and let others know. Thanks to our friends of Attaboy Productions Incorporated, like those over at Gordo's Taco Shop. Open until 9 p.m. tonight, every night, except Sundays. Closed on Sundays. Many a Sunday. Not as often anymore, but many a Sunday I have been devastated. Thinking I was going to enjoy. I remember back during football season, back during the NFL, which is coming up again for too long. Back during the NFL season, Sunday night football, I thought, man, it's going to be great. I'm going to go grab some Gordo's, going to enjoy the SN, uh, SNF. Took me a second. I was looking forward to it, and then uh, sometimes I'd even be in the vehicle, and it would hit me. Oh, man. But I think it's admirable, businesses that close on Sundays. And Gordo's is open six days a week. That is plenty of time to get over there to Gordo's Taco Shop. So take advantage of it now. Open until 9 p.m. tonight. Try the carne asada. Try anything with refried beans. Try the torta. Torta's like this little Mexican sandwich. Oh, it's not little. Nothing's little at Gordo's. Most authentic Mexican cooking that you're going to find anywhere in this area. Check them out. Gordo's Taco Shop. Thank them for being friends of Attaboy, as are the folks over at Norris Insurance. You can check out Norris Insurance all over uh, central Indiana. They've got branches. Check them out. Talk to any of their number, uh, great number of great agents. I'm stumbling through this. It's kind of brutal. Talk to any of their any of their great agents at Norris Insurance. They will come running. Okay, I think I need a commercial break. We'll do that. We'll grab a break. When we come back, um, really, really, if you're in the labor union and you got these dues that you pay and you're constantly told how those dues are going to help you out, I want to tell you what your dues went towards. And you decide for yourself whether or not you think it was worth it. You know the whole point of right to work? The whole point of right to work is to make sure that labor union bosses are accountable to the worker. Right to work is great as far as empowering the worker. Because it puts the worker in a position where they can say, when labor union bosses are doing this with my dues, that's not helping me out. That's not doing anything on my for my benefit or on my account. I'm not going to support you if you keep doing this kind of stuff. It eliminates the fraud and the abuse and the nonsense. That labor union bosses so often use dues money for. And if you want a prime example of it, I've got it for you. We come back next right here on the Peter Hag Radio Show. here on the Peter Egg Radio Show. Thanks to our friends over at uh, Hartman Family Farms. HartmanFamilyFarm at yahoo.com is their email address. If you own some uh, farmland and you're looking for some new folks to farm it, why don't you talk to the Hartmans? Maybe not this year, but maybe in one of the coming years. You know when the lease is up on the land, the agreement that you have. Maybe you're looking to go a different route. You've been with people for uh, some time. Maybe you've gone the factory farm route. You're ready to go with the family farm. In this area, there's no name better than Hartman. David's got over 40 years' experience, been farming in this area, contributing to the community, doing, uh, doing great things. He's got some sons he'd love to bring back and farm the land. If you want to establish that relationship, why don't you give him a call? 457-6697 is the number, 457-6697. Or shoot him an email, hartmanfamilyfarm at yahoo.com. Okay, so it wasn't that long ago we talked about this Dan Savage deal. Gets up at a journalism conference and he says, let me talk for a minute about the Bible. And just goes off on how evil and corrupt the Bible is and, you know, all the terrible things in the Bible. And we need to ignore all this BS that's in the Bible. And you've got, I don't remember, like a hundred Christian kids or something that walk out. And then he calls them pansy butts, except he doesn't say butt, of course, for leaving. Uh, In other words, he was bullying First, he was mocking uh, the, the beliefs, not showing any tolerance for the beliefs of the Christian kids. And then on top of it, mocked them, called them pansy butts. Imagine what would happen if a conservative were to call a group of gay young people pansy butts. Imagine what would be said. So here's Dan Savage, and it's a very bad moment for him and for the movement that he leads, because what it's doing is it's a perfect depiction of the critical, uh, the, the hypocritical nature of this entire crusade that they say they're promoting tolerance. Bull! They're not promoting tolerance. Because if there's one thing that becomes clear when you watch Savage give this speech is that the last thing he's concerned about is tolerating Christian morality and those that profess it. And so almost immediately after this, when Christian conservatives started pouncing and saying, "Uh uh-huh, this is what we've been saying, you get all these liberal media types that come immediately and start running damage control for Savage and for the homosexuals movement. Now, a lot of it was kind of funny to look at, humorous to behold. But other, uh, other defenses were so backwards that I just can't avoid addressing it. And when this email got sent to me with this link, um, this piece that's written by, and, and she, for all intents and purposes, appears to be a very accomplished writer um, of, of progressive politics. That's what she says. Remember, progressive is the label that is used when liberals don't want anyone to know that they're a liberal. That, that's what's going on there. Okay? Um, that's like me being afraid of being known as a conservative, so I call myself a, uh, a tradition-minded individual. i, I I'm traditional. You're conservative. I have no problem acknowledging that. Anyway, this this lady, uh, Amanda Marcotti-Marco, she writes for Slate, which is a left-leaning site. and, uh, And she concluded that the right's outrage towards savages' bullying was, quote, you love this, manufactured. We're just manufacturing it. We weren't really upset that he called the Bible BS and he made the Christian kids storm out of the room and then and then called them pansy butts and and for doing so. No, it's just all man, manufactured. And then she turns her ire, and this is what I found interesting. This is the part I want to share with you. She turned her ire on her fellow liberals who were not backing Dan Savage. She thought every liberal in the media should be supporting Dan Savage against this manufactured outrage. And so for all the liberals that admitted his comments were offensive at best and a clear contradiction of what the movement supposedly stands for at worst, for all of those uh, liberals that came out and acknowledged that, she has very harsh words. Now, one of them is the author over at the Daily Beast, Jay Michelson. Here is Marcotte Marcati marco ripping into Jay Ma- uh, Michelson. Michelson would be easy to write off as a, as a concern troll, but to make things worse, He speaks of falsehood about Savage's remarks. He says Savage's remarks, quote, represented a notable gay leader affirming that one must choose between sexuality and religion, between God and gay. Marcotte Marcotti-Marco says this is demonstrably untrue. What Savage was clearly saying was that it's homophobes who are presenting a false dilemma with their claims that you have to denounce homosexuality to be a Christian. He was pointing out that it's easy to reconcile pro-gay sentiment and Christianity by just doing what Christians are already doing when it comes to shellfish and slavery, which is preferring their own moral judgment over the Bible. Now listen to this last line. The oh, last line I'm going to read to you. So either Michelson is lying about what Savage said, or he didn't bother to read the comments he's denouncing, or he has poor reading comprehension. Now that's a very ironic conclusion for Marcotte Marcotti-Marco to make given that she is apparently either lying about the Bible, what it says, or she didn't bother to read the text of the Bible that she's denouncing, or she has poor reading comprehension. In other words, she's guilty of the very offense that she's claiming Michelson is guilty of. Here's what I mean. The Bible does not condemn or teach believers not to eat eat shellfish. The, The Bible does not teach believers to own slaves. Nowhere. Does the Bible do that? Nowhere is there a is there a, a, a prohibition against eating shellfish. Nowhere is there a commendation of slavery. Let's let's look at him on the former about the shellfish. The Bible is explicitly clear that the regulations about not eating shellfish or eating shellfish and all of that they were meant for the ancient children of Israel only. That's it. Those are the only people to whom those rules applied. And they applied for a specific reason at the time. God didn't want them intermingling with other pagan cultures. And that's why he gave them these weird dietary guidelines. If you're required to eat something that is your neighboring country's God, you're probably not going to be able to marry somebody of that other country, that other nation, that other tribe. If you're called to sacrifice something that the other culture worships, they're probably not going to want to intermingle with you because you're killing their God on an altar to your own God. That's what these regulations, one of the reasons these regulations were were put into place. Now, there's testing faith and all of that. But those regulations about shellfish were meant only for one nation, and that's the children of Israel. They don't apply today. Does Marcotte, Marcotti, Marco not realize that? Does Dan Savage not realize that? In other words, they're just totally ignorant of what, they, uh, what of they speak. And the idea, the second one, that the Bible condones slavery is such a warped conclusion that it's really difficult to know where to start. Um, first, understand that what Marcotte, Marcotti, Marco, and Savage, uh, when, when they read the word slavery in scripture, they are viewing that word, and we all have a tendency to do this, they are viewing that word slavery through the new world race-based slave system that, that we've experienced here in America. When they read slavery, they think Africans under the whip of their masters. That's what they think. That's what most of us think when we think of slavery. But that is not the lens through which the biblical writers were looking. That was not the slavery of their day. Now, I don't have time in this segment to go into this, and this isn't a segment about the Bible and slavery. But there are remarkable distinctions, remarkable distinctions, between what, what, what was the biblical idea of slavery and what is our modern idea of slavery. I'm actually working on a project right now, uh, taking on some of these really tough questions that, um, that I've been presented with and, in uh, you know, various debates in various circles people uh, tough questions that Christians face about their faith a lot of times Christians run away from and one of them is this issue of slavery I don't have time to go into it but there are literally like 15 or 20 as I've been doing the research of this important distinctions between what slavery was in those days and what slavery means to us today that, that are absolutely huge they are monumental differences They're absolutely critical to acknowledge if you're going to have any discussion about this. But let me suffice it to say this. Since I'm not going to go into all of those, let me just sum it up with this one simple statement. We should not be using the same term for what happened to Africans in America and what was occurring in Bible times, biblical times. We should not be using the same word. We do. We call it slavery in both instances. And that's a disservice to the intellect because the the two are not synonymous. They're not even close. It's that different. We shouldn't even use the same term. Again, did, did Marcotte, Marcotte, Marco, did she not bother to read or to comprehend this before she picked up the pen and started casting judgment? I mean, we're going to hoist her on her Odin petard here. She's either lying about what the Bible says, she didn't bother to read and to understand what the Bible says, or she's got really poor reading comprehension. And then the further question that I have comes when you read the headline of this Marcotti Marcot Marco piece, entitled "I'll read it again to you." Accurately describing the Bible is not oppression. Okay, first of all, we've already established this: that Savage and then by extension Marcot Marcotti Marco did not accurately describe the Bible. They they don't even understand the Bible. They're proof texting, they're pulling something out of context and they're quoting it, thinking it's proving their point. So, to start off, accurately describing the Bible is not oppression. Bull, you're not accurately describing the Bible. So, that totally throws that out to begin with. But, secondly, I wonder if Marcotte, Marcotte, Marco is going to be consistent in this view. Here's what I mean Will Marcotte, Marcotte, Marco acknowledge and admit that? I'll just use her words here, that, quote, accurately describing the consequences of homosexuality is not oppression. If I turn her argument around on her, she's saying, don't pick on Dan Savage just because he was accurately uh, describing what the Bible says, which he wasn't. But if accurately describing something is not the same thing as oppressing the people you're talking about, in this case Christians, Savage wasn't oppressing these Christians or being mean to them simply by telling everybody what the Bible actually says, that's her argument. Then my return argument would be, if I accurately describe the physical consequences, the spiritual consequences of homosexuality, I accurately describe it. Will you admit that that's not oppression either? If I point out the tragic physical effects and the devastating spiritual ramifications of homosexual conduct, will will Marcotte Marcotti Marco and will Dan Savage stop labeling me a hater and a bigot? Stop portraying me as some oppressor of homosexuals? Because for some reason, I doubt it. Now, like I said, we've extended the invitation. We got a hold of the folks over at Slate. Said, I'd love to have uh, Amanda. Can I do it one more time? Marcotte Marcotti Marco. We'd love to have her on the program to talk about all of this. You know what's going to be funny is if that isn't the correct pronunciation. None of those are the correct pronunciation. We'd love to have her on the program to talk about all of this. And immediately, well, first of all, when we said we'd love to have her for an interview, they got back with us, the folks at Slate, instantaneously and said, absolutely, we'd love to set this up. Uh, Can you tell us what the interview will be about? We responded and said it's about her piece, um, the uh, the piece accurately describing the Bible is not oppression. It was a couple days ago, and they've gotten back with us within the first five minutes when we first sent the original email. We haven't heard from them since then. Once we told them what we wanted to talk about, I don't know if that's a case of them, you know, doing a little looking into who I am, and you know, uh, obviously a. Uh, nutty, insignificant punk in central Indiana. And that's why they're going to withdraw or they're not going to participate. Maybe they're just trying to make the schedule work. I don't know. I'd love it if she'd come on and talk about it because these are legitimate questions. Number one, let's talk about accurately describing the Bible. You're not. And number two, will you be consistent with that view and acknowledge when Christians accurately describe the physical effects of homosexuality? 60% of all new AIDS cases in the United States are traced back to, this is the CDC, are traced back to those uh, uh, men practicing homosexuality. 60%. You figure that you got 1% or 2% of the population that's doing that, and they account for 60% of the new AIDS cases. If I accurately portray the physical consequences of homosexuality, if I accurately portray the physical ramifications, or the the spiritual ramifications, the psychological ramifications, the emotional uh, ramifications, the familial and societal ramifications of homosexuality, if I'm just honest about this, and say what it causes, will you acknowledge that in and of itself does not make me a hater, does not make me an oppressor or a bigot? Those kind of questions is why I will be thrilled, but very surprised if Marcotti Marco comes on the show. You knew I was going to get it in one more time. I'm just trying to be polite. I'm trying to make sure I, I pronounce the name the right way because I don't know her. Let me know what you think. Peter at That's Peter at PeterHegg.com. Thanks to our friends at Norris Insurance for all of your insurance needs. They will come running branches all over central Indiana. Check them out today and thank them for being good friends of Attaboy. You hear about this. Uh, I mean, I, I hesitate to even bring this up, but it is a mailbag. Excuse me. It is a mailbag Friday. And my inbox was lit up last night about this issue with the literary agent and the pamphlet that was used until 2007 about Barack Obama. Have you heard about this? (laughs) I know. And the reason I hesitate to bring this up is because I can only imagine the, I knew it, you're a closet birther. Uh, Actually, to be completely honest, I was the one that said, even before the birth certificate ever came out, I thought it was really dumb that he would spend thousands upon thousands of dollars to not just produce the birth certificate. It's not like it's a secret document. Why defend your right not to show your birth certificate in court? It's just bizarre. I said at the time, I thought that that was bizarre, but that I truly believed he was born in the United States. What I figured was he, he just didn't have a copy of the original Because he moved around, because it got lost in the shuffle and there weren't accurate records. And Obama knew that if he couldn't produce one, that that was going to only further all of this. I mean, I I think that the guy was born in America. I've always thought that, because if the Clintons can't dig anything up on you, it probably isn't there. That's always been my long-standing position on this. Have I thought that Barack Obama acts very suspicious about the whole thing? Absolutely I do, and I think it's bizarre. So when I see this story, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, I'll fill in the holes when we come back. But when I saw this story about um, this literary agent with a pamphlet acknowledging that Obama was born in Kenya, my initial thought wasn't, oh my goodness, he really wasn't born in the United States. I'll tell you what my initial thought was, but I'm not going to tell you until we come back. After this short commercial break right here on the Peter Hague Radio Show. Stay tuned.